Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest member of the Device Talks podcast family. It's called Medtronic Talks. Our constant search to find new ways to bring you insights in the medtech industry led us to the fine, fine folks at Medtronic. They've agreed to make their senior leaders available to us and to you. In each episode, we'll discuss the opportunities and challenges facing one of medtech's clear leaders, so you'll have an inside view on what makes Medtronic go. We'll ask the questions, Medtronic will provide the answers, and our great network of sponsors makes it all possible. So sit back, hop on a treadmill, take the dog for a walk, whatever you do when you listen to a great podcast, and let's listen to how Medtronic is getting the job done. Let's go. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Really, really fascinating conversation today. I spoke with Rebecca Seidel. Rebecca is the president of Cardiac Ablation Solutions and Dr. Robert Cowell. Robert is vice president of medical affairs. He's also the chief medical officer in the cardiac rhythm business, and the heart failure business. And we talked about atrial fibrillation. Medtronic is making some, some big moves in the space specifically. And really the primary point of our discussion is uh, the approval of Arctic Front as a primary treatment for uh, atrial fibrillation. Medical devices, as you all know, are often uh, sort of relegated to patients who are resistant to pharmaceutical treatment. In this case, uh, Arctic Front will be used as a first line of offense or defense in atrial fibrillation. We'll find out all the details in today's interview. So lots going on in AFib and uh, grateful to have Rebecca Seidel and uh, Robert Cowell on the program. And before we start this week's interview, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Nordson Medical. I'm speaking with David Sagans. He's a vice president at Nordson Medical. David, tell me about Nordson Medical. What are your capabilities and uh, where are you located? Nordson Medical is a global expert in the design, development, and manufacturing of complex medical devices and component technologies. We serve interventional, surgical, and specialized medical markets as the engine of innovations that help our OEM customers save and enhance patients' lives. Today's Norton Medical has more than 50 years in the making. Since the first Norton Medical facility opened in 1968, we've been strategically building our capabilities to offer customers a complete solution to their medical device development needs. This strategic build-out of capabilities has led Nordson Medical to have a global footprint of 14 development and manufacturing locations spanning the U.S., Mexico, Europe, and Israel, allowing us to work directly with our customers where they are located. All right, we'll hear more from Davis Gantz at Nordson Medical a little later in our episode. Now, let's begin our conversation with Rebecca Seidel and Robert Cowell. Well, Rebecca Seidel and Robert Carl, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Tom. Thank you, Tom. I know, Rob, you were sort of a returning uh, guest. You're on my other podcast, Device Talks Weekly, and uh, I'll uh, put that link in the uh, in the uh, show notes so people can can hear your story more fully. Uh, and I would love to find how, out how you got your how both of you found your way to Medtronic. So, Rebecca, let's start with you. Uh, what was your, your path into medical devices and ultimately uh, working at Medtronic? Yeah, great. And great to be here, Tom. Thank you so much. Um, I actually came in a, maybe a bit of a non-traditional way to med device. I'm an electrical engineer by training with uh, a master's in IT. I happened to be out on maternity leave. And in the olden days, I'm going to date myself here. We used to get newspapers 
<laughs> in the I mail. Those. Yes. And I missed them too. And I was looking through the paper and I saw this job. I thought, hey, I, I could do that job. And so I, I went in for an interview and, and the rest is history. But a part want of the ad? You really? You, you I did. answered a want ad. That's amazing. I did. <laughs> I did indeed. Indeed. Absolutely. That's great. And so you uh, you came in and interviewed and uh, what was it about uh, the opportunity that appealed to you? Yeah. So at that point in time, we were doing a lot and we still are in the connected care space. And with my master's in IT and some background in that space, uh, the position was really interesting. And I was able to, to work with a lot of clinics and hospitals uh, more on the on-site side and uh, helping them set up their, their software to manage pacemakers and defibrillators. I loved it. Continued to, to move along the path at Medtronic. Uh, moved into marketing from the, the customer service side and then uh, ultimately led the marketing team for this business, the cardiac ablation systems business, and then uh, moved to the Tyrex general manager position. That's and then funny. on to general manager of cardiac ablation solutions. That's quite a use of a, an electrical engineering degree. That's That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and Rob, I know uh, you, and again, your, your background can be heard on our other podcast, but you were a scientist turned uh, physician, electrophysiologist, uh, practicing for, for well, how long were you practicing for and what, uh, and what led you to join Medtronic ultimately? Yeah, so um, I was practicing EP, doing a lot of the, the ablation work we, we will be talking about um, for 17 years uh, and then joined Medtronic about four and a half years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, small world, uh, when we were, when I was a physician, uh, doing the proctoring for the cryo launch in China, I met Rebecca for the first time when she was coming over as the Medtronic person. Oh, wow. Um, and so, so we met there and got to know each other through the Tyrex route as well. And, you know, and we talked in, in January a bit, you know, when you make a big transition, like I did out of practice it was kind of that experience of having worked with people like Rebecca that, that made you realize this was going to be a good choice. Was Rebecca one of that? I remember you referenced that you quickly learned you weren't the smartest person in the room anymore. Uh, no, that was, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, I'm glad you remembered that comment. She is clearly one of the people I was referencing when I said that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I think he has to say yes to that right now, but I'm not sure that's who, that I was who he was referring to. Uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll call it a tie and I'll take second. All right. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk a bit about, uh, about an overview of AFib. It's a, it's a fascinating space. And uh, uh, let's talk a bit about the, the need. Uh, what, well, what is it, Rob, if you could just kind of, Paint the picture for us. What are what what condition are you treating? And let's talk a bit about it. The prevalence. If you have any information about uh, about demand and, and procedures, that'd be great. Yeah. So so atrial fibrillation is when the heart's normal pattern of beating it becomes very chaotic and irregular in the upper chambers, and that leads to a couple of things. First, it leads to an irregular beat in the lower chambers, and that that can have a couple different uh, impacts. You know, one, it can increase the risk of, of stroke. It can increase the risk of developing heart failure. Um, and, and it can increase your chance of dying relative to not having atrial fibrillation. But probably most importantly, it changes quality of life pretty dramatically. And when you look at the fact that about 10% of people who are become octogenarians are going to experience AFib at some point, um, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a, it's a huge burden for not only the U S but the world. 
Excellent. And, and let's, uh, I'd love to learn a little bit about the commercial overview. And in, in researching this, uh, it, I was, shouldn't have been surprised, but there are a lot of uh, competitors in, in this space. It seems like most of the medical device companies have some products uh, in this area. Rebecca, what is, uh, how do you view sort of the, the competitive landscape uh, in AFIP? Yeah, so it's, it's highly competitive landscape where um, the, the competitors that have a number of different technologies and products can really treat all types of patients. And for, for us, what we're attempting to do is get into that space where we can have multiple different technologies to treat any types of arrhythmias. So we've built a strategy and are executing on that strategy to have cryo tools, RF tools, and pulse field ablation tools along with a mapping and navigation system in order to be able to treat um, every single patient that has an arrhythmia. And Rob, I'm just curious if you could put your electrophysiologist cap on I think for a moment. What is it that, that uh, appeals to an electrophysiologist in choosing a, a technology? Is there just a loyalty to one kind of approach, a belief either taken from data or just experience that this is the, the right way to treat, treat AFib? Because there's certainly different ways to, to go at it. Yeah, no, I, I think there's there's a couple things. One is what is the underlying mechanism that you're trying to treat and mm-hmm. what's an effective tool to get there? Secondly, and probably the thing that's been dominant in this space is the safety, right? You know, these are patients who have a lot of issues, clearly, and a lot of risks, but they're not in imminent chance of dying um, from it. Um, it's a longer-term process. So you don't want your procedure to lead to a worse outcome. So safety becomes an important aspect. And again, one of the reasons for, you know, behind the strategy Rebecca outlined, safety um, is a dominant force um, there as well. And then I think there's there's a little bit of a component that, you know, um, you know, we always talk about kind of right brain, left brain. I think there are certain technologies and abilities to maneuver things that appeal to some people better than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the, 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 key principles behind kind of looking initially at cryo and then bringing on some of these other technologies is that combination of the the ease of therapy, the safety of therapy, and the consistency of the outcome. Gotcha. Well, let's talk a a bit more about cryo. Rebecca, tell us us about your approach in cryo. We'll we'll hit upon uh, the pulse select later on, but uh, what is it? uh, Walk us through Medtronic's approach to, to treating AFib with the cryo balloon. Absolutely. So Cryo, we, we acquired this company about 10 years ago, and it's been just a, a gem in the industry. It's it's really taken off because it's simple, it's safe, and it's effective. And that's really important to both our physicians and our patients to ensure, and Rob, and Rob touched on this as well, to get a great outcome with a safe procedure and to do it with, with speed. And so as we've looked at how to use this tool for PVI, uh, pulmonary vein isolation, we've Additionally, work to continue to drive through indication expansion. So it was first uh, indicated for paroxysmal patients, those patients that have atrial fibrillation um, only from time to time. We got an indication for persistent, and now we have an indication for first-line therapy, which really allows that patient to get treatment much earlier in the course of the disease. And Rob can speak to this as well um, and better than I can from a physician standpoint. But the idea here is if you don't have to put the patient on drugs, they can get treated earlier and their outcome is going to be better for the long term. And so we're, we're excited to be able to treat patients across the spectrum of their disease state with, with the cryo balloon. 
Yeah, Rob, Rob, speak to that. I mean, this is really kind of a seismic shift for medtech. We've always been relegated to the, well, if drugs don't work, then let's try this or that or the other thing. Yeah. Uh, what, how significant is this, is this approval? Here we're going to take a break from this conversation to bring in our sponsor, Norton Medical. Once again, I'm visiting with David Sagan, Vice President. David, tell me, what type of medical device companies do you work with? We work closely with customers to develop primarily interventional med device solutions that enable procedures such as transcatheter valve replacement, cardiac ablation, kyphoplasty, stent deployment, among many other therapies. Our solutions include both finished devices, including delivery systems, balloon catheters, and cannula, as well as component offerings that include engineered shafts, medical balloons, extrusions, heat shrink tubing, and complex nitinol components. With expertise ranging from finished devices to individual component optimization, we are uniquely positioned to partner with a broad range of customers covering the entire med device lifecycle. And how do you help your OEM customers? Typically, we start at the front end of the device development process, working with customers to understand the problem and develop a unique solution. Once a design solution is reached, we leverage advanced modeling and proprietary testing to verify that the design meets performance requirements, ultimately taking the product into mass production through our rigorous transfer and validation process. Norton Medical makes the device and the differentiated components in the device, elevating us in the market through a highly configurable manufacturing platform, providing our customers with significant design freedom and flexibility from a single source. Finally, it sounds like you have a long history of success and a great record of growth. Tell us, where do you see Norton Medical going in the future? What kind of growth do you see happening? Here at Norton Medical, we're constantly looking to expand our capabilities in ways that add value to our customers. Continually evaluating new technology, equipment, and processes to enable new solutions that make the devices better and more cost-effective. A prime example of this was the addition of Floratech business to our portfolio last year. This competency in fluoropolymer extrusion and PTFE allows us to offer a more comprehensive line of solutions. And when combined with our other proprietary technologies, it allows us to increase our responsiveness while providing unique solutions that only Nordson can deliver. Additionally, we are always looking to optimize our footprint with the right capabilities in the right locations. Along these lines, an exciting new step for Nordson Medical is the new state-of-the-art manufacturing facility opening in Tecate, Mexico. We've been manufacturing in Mexico for the last 16 years, and the new Tecate facility reflects a commitment to provide our customers with a cost-optimized solution for full-device manufacturing. Combined with our U.S. locations, we provide rapid development and manufacturing options from our U.S. sites, and as the product transitions into greater market acceptance, we can readily transfer the production into our cost-optimized Tecate site. This is a real win for our customers because we can provide rapid development at launch, and a defined path to an enhanced cost position. Thanks for joining us, Davis Gonsan. Thanks for sponsoring this episode, Nordson Medical. You can find more information on their website, nordsonmedical.com. Yeah, Rob, Rob, speak to that. I mean, this is really kind of a seismic shift for medtech. We've always been relegated to the, well, if drugs don't work, then let's try this or that or the other thing. Yeah. Uh, what? How significant is this, is this approval? You know, it... it, it I don't want to overstate too much, but I think it's huge. And, mm. I'll, and I'll, I'll put it back in the perspective, right? Um, we all try to use the, the what we think of the simplest or safest approach of drugs first um, because a procedure carries those upfront risks. That said, it's not like the antiarrhythmic drugs that you use to treat AFib are that 
safe or mm-hmm. effective. About 50% of patients who get these drugs fail either because they have recurrent AFib or a significant side effect within a year. And um, again, going back to what I had said related to safety, depending on what other kind of comorbidities you might have as a patient, some of these drugs have a, a mortality risk of up to one or 2% from taking them. Wow. So they're not, they shouldn't be, they're, they're not handled lightly. And that's why for the most part, electrophysiologists are the ones kind of managing them. So, so, you know, when you look back to when we were, we were in the first um, study that led to approval of the cryoballoon in the first place, 15 years ago, you know, at the time you had to put people on drugs first. Um, they were still highly symptomatic with their AFib when they came to you. Um, and the state of the art was kind of this kind of point by point radio frequency with catheters that were not as sophisticated as now and, and a high complication rate. And these were procedures you kind of woke up dreading to do. And then along comes this, this device where you, you freeze for four minutes mm-hmm. uh, and maybe twice in a vein, and you got the effectiveness that took you a lot longer. And that's when you could kind of see this vision to swimming upstream in AFib and getting to patients earlier and earlier. So, so to see this first line data come out um, is just, it, it's, it's really this culmination of, of you know, what you could see 10, 15 years ago and hope would happen. And now you see it come true. So I think it's a really big deal for patients. And how much of an issue is, is compliance? I know in other trials like mental innovation, they were complicated. And this was earlier on before you acquired it or, or earlier on before Medtronic. Uh, it was a few years ago, but there was a, there was a, the issue was that patients don't always take their drugs and you can, t- you can kind of, you can, build out these models based upon full compliance, but if they don't take the drugs then all that out is out the window, how, how big an issue is compliance in, uh, in, in people with AFib taking their medication? It, it is. I think it's particularly uh, an issue of compliance around the stroke prevention. Mm-hmm. I think for AFib um, for the symptoms is different from hypertension or even stroke prevention is those are silent. Mm-hmm. Like those they're damaged silently until you have the stroke. Whereas AFib, like you, a lot of people kind of feel it and know they're in it. This gotcha. is the type of patients who, who we're treating. Um, and so they know if they miss their drugs or don't take them, they're more likely to go into it. Um, but that said, they feel miserable often on these drugs. So the compliance is really around just not liking it as opposed to um, forgetting uh, and things like that. Understood. Now, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, I'd like to add to that, if that's okay. Please. Um, the, the fact that patients tend to take about two to three years to actually get to an ablation if um, they're they're indicated in this space, I think is is a big deal to be able to move that much further ahead. And, and Rob mentioned, they just don't feel well on the drugs. And this gives them an opportunity much, much earlier to, to have a treatment that makes them feel better and to do better for the long haul. That's great. Well, let's talk about how you're commercializing this and about the sales. I think I, I, I want, I'd love to understand sort of how you go about uh, informing people about this new approach, informing patients about this new option they have. I mean, ultimately, I assume they're going to listen to their physicians about what they'll get, what kind of treatment they'll get. But walk us through sort of the, the commercialization effort going forward. Right. And so I would say that the electrophysiologists are already there. They, they believe in this. They want to treat patients earlier. And um, I, I think that's a that's a subset of the physicians who who are already on board. 
when we look at other physicians and other stakeholders in this space, we look at the cardiologist who believes in, in ablation, but needs new data, new information to send the patients earlier. So we will be having dialogue and conversations with the cardiologists to really um, move away from the perception that an AF ablation takes four or five hours to get done. These ablations happen in an hour to an hour and a half now. The outcomes are much better than they were five, wow. six, even 10 years ago. And so I think we need to really up our game with the cardiologists and help them understand um, what the implications are of the, these new data. Um, in addition to that, patients really care about this. So we are working on a direct-to-consumer campaign where we will reach out directly to patients, explain to them you know, what this new um, data says, and as well, really help them understand how they can uh, get through the care pathway much more quickly. So we're excited about this. Uh, Direct-to-consumer is done in some parts of, of Medtronic, but mm -hmm. we have not done that in the ablation space. So it, it'll it'll be uh, great news for, for patients and for physicians. What does that messaging look like for direct-to-consumer? What are you trying to, what what point are you trying to convey to them that uh, that you think will convince them to, to ask about this procedure? First and foremost, patients want to understand that it's safe mm -hmm. and that it's as safe or safer than the, the existing path that they're on. And so we have great data um, showing that. So I think that's that's number one. And um, I think the second piece of it is their quality of life. And so the, the data also shows that their quality of life will be like or better uh, with this with the with this treatment path as well. And, and those are the primary the primary elements. And certainly, Rob, if there's anything you want to add there, um, that would be great. Well, yeah, Rob, I'd love to understand how, you know, the, how this feels to the electrophysiologists, how they how they uh, look at a uh, direct to consumer campaign and uh, in having patients come in with sort of a, an idea in mind, but also how, how are the, how are you approaching them? And, and, and it sounds like they're already there, but what, what kind of messages are you are you sharing with electrophysiologists about this option? Yeah. So first off with the electrophysiologist, there's there's a lot of attention to this space. It's been something that's been looked at in parallel. There have been some other studies um, broader studies suggesting that treating AFib earlier is better to prevent disease progression. So this fits right in line. I think the other thing that's that's eye-opening is it wasn't just our study, but there was a parallel study out of Canada, run out of Canada. Both were back-to-back -back papers in New England Journal showing the effectiveness of cryo as a first-line therapy. So, you know, it's not often, as you know, you get kind of back-to-back -back New England Journal papers in line with the same result. We often see the ones that are discordant. Um, so that's that's a big deal. I think the other, you bring up an interesting point too, right? That the physicians always feel like the education is their realm. And so I think, you know, one of the things we've worked on um, as we've talked about kind of direct to, uh, to, to uh, patient or direct to consumer is what is the message? And I think um, as a physician, in my mind, it has to be truthful and honest and not overselling and telling the story right. And if you do that, then I think everybody can feel like it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's when you start overreaching and promising things that are not really um, within the data set that, that physicians kind of fight back. And, and, and I think we've been really conscious about, about how, to, how to craft that. Rebecca, I'm just curious, did, did you, the naming of the device have anything to do with the direct-to-consumer sort of focus uh, to give it something that is easy to remember? Do you, how much of that gets consideration? 
Yeah, I think, yes, absolutely, that, um, you know, we want patients to understand that this can be a first-line therapy for them. It's also pretty common knowledge in, in the medical space that um, that terminology as well. So I think it does resonate with both patients and with with physicians. Mm-hmm. And, and one area I, I hadn't really thought about until just now, what kind of interaction are you having with payers? Um, are they more inclined to pay for a drug than they will a procedure, or do they see this as long-term a cost saver? I don't know which of you may may deal directly with payers or who. So I can start there. I I think that anytime there's a cost savings opportunity and the patient feels better, it's an opportunity for us to have dialogue with payers and the, the long pull or the the longevity of this disease for patients. um, If we can treat it earlier and prevent it from recurring, will certainly save dollars for the system as well as make the patients feel better. Yeah, no, I'd echo that. I think that one of the powerful pieces of having two fairly significant trials is we can kind of start combining this data and look at economic outcomes. And, you know, I think this is a space where you've got to move away from just kind of mortality looks to this this quality of life piece, which Mm -hmm. is harder to do, but is really critical because you're dealing with a group of people uh, many who have paroxysmal AFib who are, because we're moving upstream and are earlier in their course of care, are still working, right? And and so it's not the retirees necessarily, mm. there's some of that, but it's working people whose jobs have been disrupted. And how do you capture things like, I can get back to work without without uh, concern, or I can you know do the family things I want to do, um, and, and, and kind of monetize that uh, in terms of to the system in terms of kind of days at work, days not in the physician's office, days out of the emergency room, things like that. But those are the things we're looking at. And like I said, we we have the power of a couple studies now to put to bear on it. That's great. And just the final area I'd like to cover is just uh, your work in, in the pulse field, pulse select. Uh, you've got some trials going on there. How important is it, before we get into the details of that technology, to have sort of multiple approaches to treating AFib uh, and to have more, I guess, to have those extra shots on net. Is it, is it necessary to have two or three or four different technologies to, to treat this disease? I think it is. I think that as we, as we look to the future, there will be opportunities for cryo, RF, and pulse field ablation in, in this space. The reason I say that is because there are multiple types of arrhythmias. And mm-hmm. we talked a lot about atrial fibrillation today, but there are other things like VT, SVT. And we think that there are certainly tools that can treat across that, across that spectrum of both disease states and the technologies. And so I think it'll continue to be important for the long haul to have all three. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think the other piece is, as much as we know about doing pulmonary vein isolation, as a, and, and, and again, the reason for treating early is because that's the pulmonary veins are the main sources early. When you get into later phases of AFib, it's less about the pulmonary veins. And we still have a lot to learn about the mechanisms and to be able to bring to bear different types of energy sources, depending on those mechanisms as we learn more, is gonna be really critical. Well, that's great. Well, let's talk a bit about, uh, about Pulse Select. Where are you with that, uh, those trials and that technology? So we've, we're very excited about this technology. We've completed the pilot 
phase. It's a global trial and we're moving into the pivotal phase at this point. We're about half enrolled in this trial and we expect to finish um, the enrollment by the end of this calendar year. And so um, it's a paroxysmal and persistent. So a two arm study, 150 patients in each arm. And uh, like I said, we're, we're getting close to finishing the enrollment. It's a year follow up and then we'll have results at that point. Great. And uh, anything to add to that, Rob? I uh, know just, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I, I, I was privy to this technology a long time ago, again, before I came to Medtronic and share the same kind of excitement from when what I described when we first started using the cry balloon. I, I think this is one of those things that can, you know, redefine how you go about ablation, not only from kind of the ease and effectiveness, but, but again, the safety factor. You know, you, you, if you continue to make incremental um, improvements in safety, it just opens the door to how you can treat people. Terrific. And final question. Uh, I just want to for, sort of follow up uh, on an internal issue, just the reorganization. I wonder how that has uh, has settled for you and how your life in Medtronic or work in Medtronic is different uh, now that you're sort of your own operating unit. So I would say that uh, I think this was a great move by Jeff to, to organize his operating units. I think it gives us flexibility and autonomy to really drive the, the therapy that we have and the, the opportunity for patients to, to get therapies faster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's largely the same um, for our business, given that, you know, we were organized somewhat like this before, but what I do think it will give us is, is speed in our, in our, in our innovation pipeline and autonomy to, to continue to get that work done quickly. So I think it's a great move. And Rob, are you working only in this OU or do you, do you work for it with several? No, I actually uh, work with three right now, mm-hmm. all related to the cardiac rhythm space. Our diagnostics group, our implantable um, cardiac rhythm group, and that's where we, you know, talked in January, and and AFib. Um, and I, I agree fully with Rebecca. You can see this tangible um, um, uh, change in the mentality of speed uh, of performance within the groups. I think I, I have this really kind of luxurious spot of being able to play in all three and be the voice of that one customer that all three serve. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's just, it's, it's a ton of fun being in this spot. Um, and you can see that, that, you know, everyone's kind of hit the accelerator with this move. That's great. Well, employees really want to be connected to the business that they serve, right? They want to see how the work that they do drives outcomes for patients and how it, how it connects to the mission. And I think this structure really, really gets to that. Oh, that's a great point. I think that's where the, the satisfaction comes from uh, dealing with the customers and solving their problems. Uh, you, you mentioned innovation. Uh, just curious, going forward, uh, as you search for even new tools and new technologies, not to not to add to your to-do list, but uh, do you see that growth coming through uh, internal innovation primarily, or do you uh, see acquisitions being a part of that strategy? I think for this business, given where we are, it will be a combination and it will continue to be a combination over time. Like I mentioned, Cryoballoon was a was an acquisition. Mm-hmm. Pulse field ablation is is done completely internally. Mapping and navigation may be some external opportunity for us. And so, I think we'll continue to just leapfrog going forward with both internal and uh, acquisitions. Terrific. Well, it's a, a great conversation. It was a pleasure to have you both on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. It was great fun. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. 
And that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Thanks to our guests, Rebecca Seidel and Robert Cowell. Thanks to our sponsor, Nordson Medical. And of course, thanks to you for finding us and tuning in. If you want to make it easier to find us in the future, please do subscribe. The Medtronic Talks podcast is available on all major podcast channels, Google, Amazon, Spotify, Apple. We're out there. Just uh, follow or subscribe and you'll have future episodes sent directly to your phone or wherever you're listening to these podcasts. While there, you can also find our Device Talks weekly podcast. You can find them both, of course, on our devicetalks.com website. In addition to subscribing, if you would please share this episode on your social media channels. And while you're doing that, please uh, connect with me. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Whether or not you're sharing, connect with me on those social media channels. Anyway, I'd love to be part of your future MedTech conversations. That's a wrap. Thanks again to our guests. Thanks again to Norton Medical. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast.